morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, we've been here in the States for six weeks, and we have been speaking in churches, and um, we've given this presentation that we're going to give today over ten times, so I'm hoping that uh, we still have some freshness and some enthusiasm left uh, for what we say today. What we want to do in this time is um, talk a little bit about what we do in Australia. And for some of you, that will be review. But for some of you, you've never met us and you don't know anything about what, what we do. So hopefully that will be new. And then we want to talk about one of the parables that Jesus taught. And then tell some stories about how that parable influences our work in Australia and New Zealand. And then at the end, Mary is going to teach us a song of blessing from Australia. This passage that was read this morning from Ephesians 4 is one of the ones that has been important to us in the work that we do in Australia. We see that our work is to equip other people for the work of ministry. It's not our job to do all the ministry ourselves, but to equip others so that all of us then grow up to be mature in Jesus Christ. So this Ephesians 4 has been an important uh, passage for us. We have a column that we write every um, quarter in our journal, and it's called The View from Ephesians 4. And so this, this idea of pastoring others, equipping others, that has been very key to us. And then the second passage that was read today from Jeremiah is also a very key passage. Seek the welfare, and in the Hebrew the word is shalom. The, the wholeness, the peace, everything that is good. Seek that wherever God has planted you. And this passage, the people were in Babylon. They were among their enemies. And God said to them, your welfare, your shalom is wrapped up with the shalom of your enemies. And wherever God plants us in the world, we are to seek the welfare, the shalom of the people around us. And Part of the mystery of that is our own welfare is tied up with the welfare of those around us. So we can't ignore our neighbors and those around us. So that's also been a passage that has been very important to us over the years. Mary's going to talk about some of the work that we do through what we call the AAANZ, and she'll explain a little bit more what that is. In 2005, people from the Mennonite Mission Network came to Australia and they introduced us to something called, what is an Anabaptist Christian? That we have to answer all the time in Australia. We very much are Christians. That's our main thing there. But we talk about Anabaptism. And so in that, it talked about three things. Jesus is the center of our faith. and That's the very center of who we are and what we do. Community is the center of our life. In Australia, that's very important. People gather. They may not gather in their homes because it's such a beautiful place, but they gather in parks. They gather in, um, down by the beach. And when they go to a restaurant, they don't go for just an hour. They go for the whole night. They settle in with their esky full of stuff. Oh, that's a cooler, by the way. Their esky and their party decorations. <clears throat> Waitresses don't expect to run several tables through. They expect people to come and sit for the night. And then reconciliation is the center of our work. <clears throat> and Mark and I often talk about the fact that we're not there just to connect people to God. That's one bar of the cross, and that's important. But the other bar of the cross is connecting, reconciling all of creation. 
humans to creation, humans to each other. So we work very hard at peace and justice and working at how we connect our faith to how we live our lives. AAANZ, the Anabaptist Association of Australia and New Zealand, um, by the way, we don't have Zs in Australia, we have Zs. Oh, we don't have Zs, we have Zs, yes. Um, So Mark and I are pastoral uh, pastors to a network of people across two countries. That's Australia and New Zealand, and we do some work in Asia. But between Australia and New Zealand, from Auckland in New Zealand to Perth in Australia, that is six time zones. Okay, so we're dealing with people across six time zones. We also are teachers of peace and justice in a variety of settings, uh, schools, churches, community groups, prisons, wherever they'll let us in. Um, We used to edit a quarterly journal called On the Road, and we just got talked a young adult into doing that. He is a librarian in Perth at a Baptist theological school over the largest Anabaptist gathering of books in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, But he's at a Baptist school, and they're quite proud of their Anabaptist collection. He also is a young journalist, and we're really tickled to be able to turn the journal over to him. But we also have an email service that we pass, send out emails twice a week that are resources. At the time of 9-11, people wrote us and said, can you give us resources to talk to our children about this, about war, about terrorism, about fighting, about violence? And they said, do you have resources to talk to churches? And so we created a special edition of our journal, and that became a twice-weekly service of resources for people and articles about things that Anabaptist-type people might be interested in. We also network our networkers connecting people. We'll often have people call us or email us and say, I think I'm an Anabaptist. Do you know anybody in our area? They'll also say, I think I'm an Anabaptist. How would I know? So talking about an Anabaptist Christian, or I think I've been an Anabaptist my whole life and I didn't know it. I didn't know there were people that believed this way or viewed scripture this way. We also do a lot of answering questions. And later on, Mark will talk to you about some of those questions we've answered. So we are definitely supporting and resourcing other people. We send lots of things out to people as far as resources. AAANZ has a membership of over 100, um, and those people are in a variety of settings. We did a a checking recently, and there were 16, at least 16, teaching in universities or theological schools. There were denominational leaders or people that serve with Christian organizations or in urban ministries. We also have over two to 300 on our mailing list, and that's not individuals. Often um, our mailings go to a house church, and that's sent out to everyone. In one theological school, we send it to the librarian, and she sends it out to all the students. Um, Sometimes it goes to a church, and once again, it's sent out to a variety of people. So in some ways, we're light on the ground, meaning there aren't many of us, but we punch above our weight. That's not a very Anabaptist thing to say, but it is a very Australian thing to say, which means we have more influence than you would think because there are so few of us. But because of the places that there are Anabaptist or Anabaptist-leaning people, we influence a variety more people than we should. Um, On the Road is the the journal that we produce uh, quarterly. The email service is up at the top, and we've started a new thing. Because we're spread out over six time zones, I've started a prayer diary and members directory. So I've taken people, pictures of the people in the network, and once a month, I had been doing it now, because we're here, I did it a quarter, for a whole quarter. I put people's pictures and then prayer requests that they might have, and we send that out to everyone in the network. So at least we're praying for each other. 
even though we're spread out. And some of these people don't know each other, so it's a good way to have them connect. We also produce a variety of pamphlets and brochures. We produced a brochure before Mennonite Mission Network did on what is an Anabaptist Christian. And then we create, have created ones on restorative justice, forgiveness, other questions that people have. We have them on the website so that people across the network, across these six time zones, they can download them and hand them out and use them when they're talking to other people. In this recent book by Gary Harder, talking about dancing through thistles and bare feet, it's a reflection on 42 years of pastoral ministry. Gary is a Mennonite pastor in Canada. And one of the parables that he deals with in this story uh, and his interpretation of that has been very meaningful for us over the last year or so as we've looked at what we're doing. He talks about this very common parable, the parable of the mustard seed. And in Matthew, Jesus, in a series of parables about the kingdom, and there are three in a row that have about seeds, we have this parable. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. Now, Gary says there are a couple things wrong with this. Uh, he said, first of all, that the traditional understanding of this is that the kingdom of God is like this small thing that gets planted and then it becomes a world-dominating kingdom and it's expressed by this huge tree. And he says that's probably not what Jesus was talking about. He says, one, the mustard seed wasn't the tiniest of all seeds and the mustard plant doesn't grow into a massive tree. And if Jesus wanted to talk about the kingdom of God as being this world-dominating kind of thing, he could have used the cedar tree, which was a common image used in the Old Testament. Like here in Ezekiel, where it says, On the mountain height of Israel I will plant a noble cedar. Under it every kind of bird will live. In the shade of its branches will nest winged creatures of every kind. So something else is going on in this parable. And what he says is, most of the listeners at that time would have been shocked by this for a number of reasons. One, mustard seed was a, it was a weed. It was not something you would plant in your garden. Matter of fact, in Jewish law, it was forbidden to plant it in your garden. That's one thing. Another thing is, if you have a garden, and many of you here would be good Mennonite gardeners, you don't want birds to be attracted to your garden. And in an earlier parable, it talked about the birds when the seeds were thrown out. What did the birds do? They came and ate the seeds. So you think, what's going on here, Jesus? What are you talking about? And his listeners would have been shocked by this. Gary says, the mustard plant is famous for two qualities. First, it is an uncontrollable, pesky plant. It grows wild and was almost impossible to cultivate, and if you could get it to grow, you couldn't get rid of it. Think dandelions. Think, if you're from the south, kudzu. In Australia, we would think about lantana. These invasive kind of plants that get into our gardens and we can't get rid of them. And Jesus is saying, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's this plant, these seeds, and we sung about these seeds this morning, these seeds of mercy and grace and peace, and they get planted, and they take over, 
And they become this pesky, invasive kind of thing that just grows. He says the plant is unruly, subversive. It mingles. It messes up. It is wild. It can't be tamed. It's like jazz music refusing to fit the proper categories. The kingdom, Jesus said, is like a mustard seed. Pesky, wild, uncontrollable, exasperating, and subversive. The second thing he said about the the mustard seed is that in biblical times, the mustard plant was considered a medicinal plant. And I googled mustard seed recently, and it's today, too, it's considered a a medicinal kind of uh, plant. It was a cure-all for everything from sore throats to snake bites. Mustard was a symbol of healing, which was one of Jesus' primary ministries. Now, Gary says, I struggle with this parable because he said, I'm a good Mennonite gardener. I like to plant things in rows and get rid of the weeds, and I like to know what's going to come up. So he says, I struggle with this, this image of the kingdom that is wild and subversive. And he says, I also don't like this idea of birds coming in because birds upset things, and birds probably represented the Gentiles and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the others. And he says, you know, everything about my being a good Mennonite gardener, a good Mennonite that likes everything neat and in order, he said, I struggle with this interpretation. But he said, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. And he he ends by saying, the spirit will never, ever be limited by our way of gardening. The spirit will bring together people we think should be kept apart and will mess up our interpretations and categories. The Spirit will do all that to bring healing to our world and to the church. Now, when we first went to Australia back in 1990, EMM sent us, I think, with the idea of planting a nice Mennonite garden kind of church. You know, we would have a building on the corner, and 10 o'clock Sunday morning we would have services and people would come. But that's not how things have worked out for us in Australia, and that we found out that that, that kind of church doesn't work. So what we're going to do now is tell you a number of stories of how we've been planting these seeds and they've been taking off like these wild mustard seeds. And we're seeing the kingdom of God grow in unexpected ways. Mary's going to tell you a story about some of the people that we've been living with in recent days. In uh, 2007, we left Australia because I was going to finish my master's degree at AMBS. And so we had to let go of our apartment, which was kind of hard for us because it's the place where we've lived the longest since we've been married even though we travel in and out at least it was a place that we could I could keep my plants so we had to let go of that and friends of ours said why don't you come to the north side of the city and live near us and have us we'll have a fellowship together but you won't have to be responsible for it it will be a place you can come home to and we said thank you Um, so we went to the US well in the meantime before this they had also studied at AMBS for a year and while they were gone they had their house worked on and redone good thing because their bathtub would have fallen through to the basement if they hadn't worked on it Um, and their roof would have fallen in it was an old house so they had the house worked on but while they were there in the US they had to have someone live in the house to let the builders come and go and so this woman came and stayed in their house she is their children's piano teacher she is not a Christian so when they redid their house they built an apartment downstairs for her and when they would when they came back they are really hospitable people and so they have church meetings and gatherings at their house all the time and she would help One day she came up and she said, I want what you have. And so they started talking to her directly about their faith. Then one day she came up and she said, 
I've decided to become a Christian. And so then they started discipling her. Well, these folks bought a house for us. They were looking for an apartment, couldn't find an apartment for us, and so they bought a house, and we are living in the top floor of that house. They redid the basement, and the first woman's mother moved in downstairs. Also, no Christian connections. So guess what? She's asking questions. Why do you do this? Who are you? <laughs> and she grew up in Holland, right where Menno Simons grew up. So she kept saying, we never heard about you people. Who are you? So we gave her a book about Menno Simons as well um, and books about Anabaptists. She came to, she's part of our fellowship that we meet once a month as well as every Friday night we take turns having a meal and she's in on the cooking rotation now. But we do things that she doesn't quite understand. And on Easter Sunday, we had a sunrise service at someone's home. And she was there. And, of course, we read scripture and we prayed. And afterwards, she said, you talk to God like God's right there, like you know God. And I started thinking about it. We close our eyes and talk as if God's present. That must be really weird to a non-Christian. Just think about that. We talk to something that's not really, we can't touch it. You know, we can't touch God. And then she said, one night we were talking about Ruth at the dining room table. And afterwards she said, you act like you know these people. Like Ruth, you know her. And I started thinking, well, yeah, we talk about these people as if we do. Because I've been learning stories about them my whole life. And I said, you know what? I really don't even care if these people existed. But what the Bible tells me is how God cares for people, how God wants to relate to people. And that's a really exciting story for me because God cared so much that God even came and lived among us. Got this part. Um, every two years in January, we have a gathering um, of people because we're spread out of six time zones and invite other people. The most recent one in this past January was called Anabaptism and New Monasticism. And lots of people were interested in new, the new monastic movement, movement where young people are moving into the city to live their lives, but they work really hard at their spirituality. So they meet for worship and that sort of thing. So we had... Of the 75 people who came, most of them, well, it was almost 100, most of them had never been to anything Anabaptist. And many of them were young adults, so we were quite excited about these people coming. And one of the guys that came was the local Anglican rector or Anglican priest or pastor. And he hadn't had any connections with Anabaptists or Mennonites before, not much connection with um, the peace understanding of the gospel that we talk about, but something stuck, some seed got planted in him. And he went away and he became part of our mailing list. And we got an email from him one day and he said, Hi Mark and Mary, a quick question. What do Anabaptist Mennonites think of military chaplains in the Australian Defense Forces? Is this a legitimate career path for Christians? Now I wish we had time this morning and I would put you in small groups and have you talk about this. How would you answer a question like this if you got a question from somebody that said, is it legitimate for Christians to be part of the military here in the U.S. Uh, as a chaplain, you know, not even serving? He said, you know, you don't have to carry weapons and all this. So we started this conversation back and forth. I wrote back to him a, a quick answer. I said, the quick answer is it would be problematic. I'm not sure about here, but in the U.S.A., chaplains are part of the military command structure. They serve the military first. I'm not sure how long a chaplain would last telling everyone that serving in the military is wrong. Probably a short career. So 
we're back and forth, and we're, he had longer questions, and we gave longer, more detailed answers, and we were praying for him in this. And then we found out that it was more than just a theoretical question for him. He was leaving parish ministry, and he was looking at what was next. And he wrote and said, I've been looking at career military chaplaincy with the ADF, having resigned as vicar of my current parish. I recently went to visit a former college colleague who is now with the ADF as a chaplain. He wants me to seriously consider military chaplaincy, so I've been giving it some more serious thought. So we continued to pray for him and email back and forth, and then finally around Easter, he made a decision. And he wrote it up in the bulletin for his church and announced what his decision was. And this is what he wrote to us. He said, thanks for your prayers for me while thinking over Army chaplaincy. Here's what I ended up from our weekly church pew sheet. And I I must tell you that in Australia on Palm Sunday, there are peace marches all around the country. And it's not often Christian, but somehow this idea that Palm Sunday and peace go together has planted itself in in Australia. And this is what he said to his congregation. Palm Sunday is an occasion for peace marches, recalling Jesus' peaceful entry to Jerusalem in 33 AD. Yet palm branches were also used when Judas Maccabeus, a guerrilla fighter nicknamed the Hammer, came to Jerusalem and won a battle to rid it of foreign overlords in 164 BC. If the crowds wanted another military leader, Jesus disappointed them. Was that partly why they turned so quickly to call for his crucifixion just a few days later? A minister friend who is an army chaplain has asked me to join up after I leave the parish. Australian Defense Force chaplains are in demand, well-paid, and don't have to bear arms. But did you know that the church uniformly held a pacifist view until the 4th century A.D.? Before that, Christians were forbidden to enter military service. Soldiers who were converted while serving were denied baptism until they left, and were to refuse orders to kill others in the meantime. This stance changed radically after Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire. By 415 AD, only Christians could be soldiers. And theologians developed just war theories to regulate conflict. And I think this is fascinating. An Anglican pastor asking his Anglican congregation, was this progress or a disaster? He goes on, he says, a pacifist stance was recovered by the 16th century Anabaptists. The later Quakers also held this view. Pacifism gained wider support in other churches in the 20th century. And then he gets to his decision. The spiritual needs of military personnel need ministry. But I can't imagine you could commend Jesus' way, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, etc., to people trained to fight without encouraging them not to fight. Being paid by the military to be a chaplain would make that role even more problematic. That's my opinion. What's yours? Now, he left. He didn't join the chaplaincy. He's now teaching in a Bible college. And he's teaching this kind of theology. And to me, that's an illustration of mustard seeds being planted There's no way we could plan, you know, oh, we're going to have somebody come to this conference and they're going to pick this up and they're going to go and teach this. That's the way this mustard seed kingdom works. You plant those seeds, God waters them, and all kinds of stuff happens. Mary's going to tell you one more story from our work down under. Because we're constantly trying to figure out ways to build community, 
um, we've started what we call teleconversations. We'll encourage people all over the two countries to gather in table fellowships with a speakerphone. And then we'll have someone at one of those table fellowships as a speaker. And they will talk on a topic then we'll, for a half hour, and then we'll have a half hour of question and answers. And then, though the telephone conversation ends, we encourage them to continue the conversation around the table. The most recent conversation we had, our daughter Mariah was the speaker. She works with young adults in Canberra in the capital. And she was talking about young adults and the church and the people that, that she runs into and what adult, young adults think about the church. And she talked about this one young man who used to go to an evangelical fellowship and now he goes to a Quaker or friends meeting. And she said to him, why? Why did you switch from the evangelical church to the Quaker meeting? And he said three things. One, they expect the Holy Spirit to show up every Sunday. And I thought, do we do that? I know we asked for the Holy Spirit to be present this morning in the, the things that when he started, but I know one writer who says we should wear crash helmets if we really expected the Holy Spirit to show up because we wouldn't know what we'd be called into doing. Um, so that was one. The other thing is that they anticipate that their worship will infect their daily lives and how they work at the kingdom. They expect the dance that we learn here, how to be a Christian and how to live out this way of being, that we will go into the world and be able to do those dance steps, be the people of God out there. People will find that first alternative, then they will be attracted to it, and then they're going to ask us, what is this about you? Why do you do this? And then we can, with uh, respect and gentleness, tell them about the hope that's within us. The other thing is that they, he said that the elders of the congregation there totally interact with the young adults, and then they call out gifts. And Mariah was saying that when she was at Goshen College, there was a group of them sitting around one night talking, and they were saying, if somebody called us and said, you have this gift, they could use you in Central America. They would drop university and go to Central America. Very few of them had that happen. One of their group, that's exactly what happened to him. Somebody said, you have a gift, they need you in Central America. He dropped university and he went. I don't think we need to tell young adults what to do, but we do need to say, you have this gift, you have this gift, you have this gift. How can you use that for God? Mariah is running a program called Irene's Place, and it's a discipleship center, and that's what she's doing. She's encouraging young adults to come, discover what their gifts are, what their passions are, and then use them for God. No telling what the seeds will be uh, out there. I want to close with a quote from Wilbert Shank, who is a Mennonite missiologist. And some of you who know me know I like to throw in these kind of quotes when I, when I teach. Mary often says, oh, don't use the big quotes, but bear with me on this. I think it's a good one. And what I think this quote does is it brings home the idea that this mustard seed kingdom and this seed planting and this shalom seeking of those um, our, of our neighbors and those people around us, it's not just for Australia and New Zealand. It's wherever God has planted us. Wilbert says, the faithful church living out God's reign cannot feel completely at home in any culture. Yet in light of God's basilea, God's kingdom, this mustard seed kingdom, the church is responsible to witness God's saving intention in every society every society. There is no biblical or theological basis for the territorial distinction between mission 
and evangelization. You can't separate what's going on out there and what's happening here. To accede to this dichotomy is to invite the church to settle in and be at home. And I think in places like Lancaster and Harrisonburg and Elkhart, we're in danger of settling in and saying, oh, well, this is home. You know, Australia, New Zealand, that's out there. But what Wilbert said is the church is most at risk where it has been present in a culture for a long period of time so that it no longer conceives its relationship to culture in terms of missionary encounter. The church remains socially, salvifically relevant only so long as it is in redemptive tension with culture. So you are also called to plant those pesky mustard seeds of the kingdom right here in Lancaster in the work that you do. We are all called to seek the shalom of the city where God has planted us. We're all called to spread around those pesky mustard seeds of God's kingdom. And we are all called to grow into mature faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Mary's going to teach us um, an Australian blessing. Australia is the driest inhabited continent on earth. And we work often with these images of the wilderness and dry, and we talk about the edges and the center. Most of the people live on the edges, but a number of Christians are discovering pilgrimage to the center where they go and they, they find out some of the, the spirituality of this dry land. And that's what this song is about. So Mary's going to teach it and lead us in that. The pictures throughout this song are of Western Australia and the area around Uluru. Uluru is this big rock in the center of Australia. And it is flat, 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 rock, flat, 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 flat. It's an anomaly. It shouldn't be there. Um, in fact, there's, it's seven miles around, and it's I don't know how many stories high, but there's more of it underground than there is above ground. They're not quite sure how large it is, and they think it may be a meteor because it just doesn't fit there. Uh, but people go to Uluru more thinking about the fact that as we go to the center of who we are, we find out who we are to be as well as we find God. And we need to work at that to be the best people we can be. And so this song is about going to the center and finding God and saying, God be with me. Uh, we sang about that today, about God being in the world around us and with us. And that's what we need to do. Um, the neat thing about this rock, even though it's in the middle of the desert, is water runs off this rock. And I don't know if it's condensation, but water will run off and there are oases at the edge of this rock in the middle of the desert. And there are trees and plants and streams in the middle of the desert around this massive rock. And so it's a, for me it was a joy to walk around it and see all this. But it's also been a sacred place for aboriginals for eons. And they encourage people not to walk on it because for them it's like a cathedral. Um, unfortunately, Westerners don't appreciate that and walk on it. Um, but you'll see pictures of it, and I'll sing the song for you. And then you can join in eventually. For you, deep stillness of the silent inland. For you, deep blue of the desert sky. For you, flame red of the rocks and stones. For you, sweet water from hidden springs. From the edges, 
seek the heartland. And when you're burned by the journey, may the cool winds of the hovering spirit soothe and replenish you. In the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. Can we start again, Mark? And if you want to join in, then you can. It's just that repeated several times. And I'll pitch a little higher. For you, deep stillness of the silent inland. For you, deep love the desert skies. For you, flame red of the rocks and stones. For you, sweet water from hidden springs. From the edges seek the heartlands. And when you're burned by the journey, may the cool winds of the hovering spear soothe and replenish you in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. For you, deep stillness of the silent inland, for you, deep blue of the desert skies, for you, flame red of the rocks and stones. For you, sweet water from hidden springs. From the edges seek the heartlands. And when you're burned by the journey, may the cool winds of the hovering spirit soothe and replenish you in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ. From the edges seek the heartlands, and when you're burned by the journey, may the cool winds of the hovering spirit soothe and replenish you in the name of Christ, in the name of Christ, in the name.